Hello and welcome to How to AI, a show where I talk to technology experts about what it takes to use AI to solve real-world problems. In this episode, I'm talking with Stephen Cooper, aka Developer Steve. Steve is currently a developer advocate at IBM. Uh, he's worked with the likes of PayPal, Braintree, Zero, and Telstra in the past. And he's also an international speaker um, as a technologist. Steve brings an interesting perspective from both the perspective of a developer um, and what AI means for developers, but also as more broadly as a technologist, some of the AI capabilities that are on the horizon that we should be excited about um, and how that fits into the broader technology ecosystem. And he even uh, throws in a few uh, philosophical gems along the way. So I hope you enjoy it. It's a really interesting conversation. As a developer, um, one of the things I absolutely love about AI is um, not only the community behind it that continually like refines and um, builds on um, sort of the foundations already set in place. And it's always, and um, as we we're talking about it earlier, like the open source world in particular, everything's always, um, the communities are really good at building on solid frameworks and stuff they know works. Um, capability side of things for me, um, particularly like untrained machine learning, it's identifying trends and patterns. Um, and I come from an analyst background, so and that was kind of the thing you'd always do is try and identify something in a data set that no one else can see or opportunities that um, others wouldn't find. Um, and uh, AI for me is that, it's the identification of things that as um, humans we won't necessarily find or see in, in a data set trend. Um, and like AI is great at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like needle in a haystack type stuff. Totally needle in a haystack. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any examples of where? A really good example, I think, um, where I've worked with or I've seen an outcome from like a developer event, like a hackathon, is um, a, a law firm I was working with last year to do an internal hack uh, where they um, were looking for new innovative ways to help their staff do their day-to-day -day jobs. Uh, and so one of the things we did was start to uh, funnel in um, legal documents and legal notes into um, uh, Watson Studio where uh, it was able to not only identify different trends in some of the things that people were working on, but also um, allow staff to be able to access that data more freely than having to search or look through a, a really big index of documents. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, it's definitely going to have a huge part to play in legal uh, tech I think because or anything with that whole aspect of analyzing a document and then trying to find particular bits of information without having to trawl through pages and pages of you know, PDF or, or whatever like massive amounts of shared drive space of everyone setting up shared folders everywhere and yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's yeah. just you know hook, hook up the online online uh, folders and um, let it index everything and then it's that reiteration of um, uh, identifying questions that people ask that it may not understand in like a chat chatbot scenario. Yeah, yeah, sure. We were talking a bit earlier about this idea of question answering, finding information within massive data sets. Where, where do you think, I mean, aside from the, the, for the law field, um, where do you think that are, that might come into play in other other industries. Oh, I've got a great one for this one. Uh, IoT, one of my favourites. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's something I've been saying um, sort of for a while, and I realised um, particularly uh, when I was um, 
working close with like the Canon One narrowband uh, IoT networks is, and that enables uh, for those that don't know, like those are the IoT centric networks. Like the, those those networks, are, it's basically like a a mobile network for your IoT device at mass. <laughs> so the the likes of uh, Linfox use it, for example, for tracking logistics, etc. Um, and the likes of Telstra have over three million square kilometers of coverage in Australia. So it's like it, the possibilities to plug into it are endless. Um, but um, that basically makes any little small scale IoT device um, the next big data because you can have one device literally sitting in a field somewhere doing agritech things or doing mining things. Um, and then that'll quickly scale out or ideally will quickly scale out. So one device will go to 100,000, will go to you know 250,000 within a matter of weeks. Um, and then you've got the problem of this, you know, data at mass. You've got these sensors sitting in fields producing a whole bunch of data and you've got to analyze it, understand it, look for trends and patterns. And so, yeah, they're a great example of being able to identify things you're not going to see in these, in these data patterns. Mm, mm, for sure. So regarding, I know that you work at IBM and you, you know, <laughs> uh, have got some exciting technology, yeah. um, what are some of the IBM innovations that you think are going that are exciting and potentially going to have an impact? Um, I think we're going to need more than uh, than this podcast to do that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and particularly, like as a dev, tech excites me. I love doing tech things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I mean, some of the stuff um, I've been looking at at IBM uh, recently, and one of the things we're talking about at um, well, we had a uh, Think Summit in Sydney recently was um, the uh, project beta AI where it would uh, the the project essentially would um, uh, hold an active debate with a, uh, a seasoned debater or a world champion debater uh, there's an amazing YouTube clip where you can actually see it come back with rebuttal and it it's actually analyzed what the the human debater has said taking that in and then compared it to its learnings and models and etc and then come back with a an amazingly intelligent response. Um, stuff like that is really cool. Um, one of the other things I've been um, sort of looking at and tinkering with lately is quantum computing, and that one, yeah, that that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, sort of looking at uh, first how it works, what you use to program it with, like OpenQuasm, for example, like open source uh, library that IBM's behind for quantum computing things, or uh, gate control for quantum computing. Um, yeah, I mean, so much cool tech. And then at the moment, we also have um, Call for Code open, which is the, um, the, the global initiative to help uh, in prevention of or recovery of uh, natural disasters around the world. So we've been doing some, um, uh, actually been playing around with, uh, it's almost an IoT device, I think it is, but um, it's 3D printed Wi-Fi that, uh, devices that don't have any electronics in them. So, yeah, looking at seeing how we can hook that up to, um, you know, uh, f flood detection, for example, the speed of floodwaters. And the best part is, like, it's um, these devices are printed with recyclable recyclable materials. Uh, so uh, if they something happens to them in the field, it's, you know, not too much of a problem. Um, but then they're easy and cheap to deploy, and you can get um, some interesting data from them as well. So, again, funneling back to that IoT um, sort of, <coughs> Uh, data at mass uh, scenario. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. I, I'd never seen that before when you showed it to me. I thought, well, it's one thing to have IoT devices that you can pay, you know, a hundred bucks 
and they'll give you a connect to your cellular network or that kind of thing. But to have stuff that you can just 3D print with no electronics and they can still emit a Wi-Fi signal is um, astounding. I, I yeah. think that that's... Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and as a dev, like, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. still blows my mind. So, like, the chance to be able to do something with it that then helps, um, you know, people uh, recover from or even monitor, like, events is, mm. is really cool. It's, yeah, fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I've uh, been doing 3D printing stuff for a bit too, so it's kind of that mishmash of like really nerdy, interesting, geeky stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because I imagine like, not just also for disaster relief, but if you think about taking that concept of a smart home to the next level where say you're a farmer and you want to know whether your gates are open or shut yeah, and you've got a, a little one of these 3D printed little buttons that is says whether it's open or shut. Yeah. You're not obviously going to pay $100 for a, a gate sensor to know whether it's open or shut if, if you've got hundreds of gates, but you might pay $5 for and, you know, then be able to stick one of these on all, all of your gates and know when they're open and shut at any given time. Like, that's just one thing that springs to mind. But, yeah. you know, though it even lo- lowers that cost again, which... You can you can put sensors on literally anything, can't you? Yeah. Well, it um, makes me think of that quote. Um, uh, you know, uh, advanced technology is discernible from magic, uh, or the variation thereof. But um, yeah, yeah. I'd even look at building it. Um, it's a good point. Is you can build it into everyday objects, and it just becomes part of your everyday life. Like um, that, the action of opening the gate could trigger a Wi-Fi signal that says, "Hey, gate's open." Yeah. And if it doesn't see a second signal then come out, is well, hey, it's still open. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it could, can quite easily be built into like everything and become that seamless um, sort of, you don't you won't even think about it, it's just sort of there. Mm. It just happens. Um, or doesn't happen as the case may be. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. I'm, I'm keen to wheel back around to this IBM debater <coughs> um, project because I think that. When you, I mean, it's one thing to have a, 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 a computer that can debate. That's that's great. It's great for show and it's a cool demonstration. But when you take the concept underlying that, which is a computer that's able to understand and hold a conversation, a complex conversation, because a debate really is a conversation. It's two yeah. two opposing views, and you got to think, well, that kind of technology. If you got that into the hands of creative people um, then there's endless opportunities to actually put that into practical business uses of well what what if instead of reading Wikipedia this read all of our company policies and then we had a conversation with it about can we do this or can we do that and then all of a sudden every little team within a company could have access to the full knowledge of that company and that industry and is this best practice, is this not best practice, should we do this, should we do that? And almost You've almost got like an, an oracle that you know you can just ask things and it tells you relevant information, Yeah, and which is sort of what Google is, but you know, this is an even more... This is know, the next level. And I yeah. think that's the, as a developer, like that's always um, at the forefront of my mind is how will this help people? Um, the last thing I'd want to do is be able to or build something or design something that um, ultimately needs people to run it almost like it always has to be something tied back to and that's kind of the the premise behind like the design thinking methodology that the 
the IBM Garage works towards is um, that whole um, not doing technology for technology's sake, like having a reason, having a purpose, having something that helps people be people. Um, ultimately, that's kind of, yeah, kind of what tech for me at least comes back to is um, I don't just like building things for the sake of building them. Sometimes it's cool, but like it ultimately has to do something. And sometimes it even is that building, just that building of that helps you understand how it works. And then like the wife 3D printed Wi-Fi stuff, once you understand how it works, then you can start to look at applications like how would I use this in the field? Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Um, have you been involved in any projects or are aware of projects where I know IBM would do a lot of these, implementing AI in a in an environment where it hasn't potentially been used before? Mm. On top of that, maybe yes or no, but if, if not, um, I'm interested to hear you talk a little bit about that framework that you use for, for mm-hmm. assessing whether a technology like blockchain or, for instance, AI is appropriate to use and the importance of doing that before you actually start set off on deploying some new technology like, like AI. Um, so one of the methodologies that I absolutely love and um, the IBM Garage is um, a really good advocate to this is design thinking, which uh, at its premise sort of takes into account... Um, the organization or the projects need for use of particular technologies, whether it's blockchain, AI, or um, irrespective of the underlying stack, it strips back the project to its core. What are we trying to achieve here? How are we trying to engage people? How does this help people? And it sort of ties back to that whole, um, you know, avoiding the building of technology for technology's sake. So building stuff out that um, does create that, that meaning and that, um, sort of value to um, people's everyday lives and again like it's for me it's about tech um, sort of tying back to helping users uh, whether it's running reports understanding data sets or um, sort of helping you understand logging on an API stack like it's about um, sort of removing that manual aspect and yeah I've built so many things over the years that sort of help to that whether it's even just a simple um, it's going to sound really simple but um like simple um, uh, macro function that just helps automate, um, you know, data between system entering or whatever. I actually did build one of those ones. Um, like for me, it's just about building stuff so that I don't have to do the manual stuff anymore and it frees people up to do people things and sort of building and creating stuff. Mm, for sure. So what would that process look like i know you mentioned that you do a workshop for a couple of days what, yep. what are the kind of things that you cover in in that workshop um so it'll be the initial sort of design thinking concepts of um you know what are we trying to achieve what what's the overall outcome of the project like what is the end goal um what does that look like what are uh, what are the um uh, sort of steps involved what uh what ultimately what and in what ways will this help every like people's these lives and to what expense like do people have to monitor um logs going in like then there's totally ways to automate a lot of that stuff so being able to identify and even um if if the the approach is correct like if the the require or the requested technologies are uh, are going to be um sort of governed and adhered to because and even sort of my time as a CTO, one of the things I was always mindful of was 
um, literally from day one of any project, you're pretty much occurring tech debt. Like there's always something that, um, you know, isn't being updated or um, stuff you have to watch. There's always that, that day one sort of start of that whole process. And so being able to get the maximum life expectancy out of a platform or out of a build is um, almost critical as, as, you know, building something of value. Mm, mm. So what are the kind of flags that if you were running a workshop and you started seeing these things that you'd say, well, maybe AI is not the right solution here? Uh, projects that won't um, maintain and adhere to um, data structure coherence and stuff. So, And again, it ties back to that um, sort of uh, long longevity of the actual platform that gets deployed is making sure um, data policies and um, structure policies are adhered to, um, making sure that there's the right tools in place uh, offline as well as online to in ensure that data going in and the integral overall project sort of um, uh, structure is adhered to over a longer period of time. And it just it just maximizes length of you know the, 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 the project itself. Last thing you want to do is put something in that um, six months down the track needs to be cleaned up or redone or like another version of it because, yeah, that annoys devs too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no doubt. So, so you mentioned um, a project about looking at logs from a, from an API yes. um, and error logs. Yeah, I'm passionate about this one. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I've done I've done this a few times now, and it kind of stemmed from again that whole manual process of. Um, and I know every devs out there has pretty much done this at some point in time, like pick through um, platform or server logs to look for various events and stuff. Like being able to take that into um, you know, a th uh, uh, an environment where uh, there's a process, a machine learning process that can identify an untrained process that can identify trends in the data that uh, you, know, you, you can then take steps to understand and potentially implement a fix for. So... In an API, particularly in an API context, like I've worked with a lot of APIs on both sides of the fence, um, being able to understand consistent data that um, consistent data anomalies that can then be tied back to restructuring how the API is built. So changing that swag spec to cater for a particular data field type. Um, one of the things I've previously seen a lot of um, well, a lot of occurrences of is date formatting. Um, yeah, you can never get that one right. No, it's just understanding, um, first of all, what users are um, uh, adding in as part of the, the API call, like the, the post or put request, um, or even a get request for that matter. And then being able to either um, do an education piece and say, no, no, the, you know, this is the format, like it could be a documentation issue, or, or then um, sort of tying that back to design. Like if it's a consistent error, well then, those will just uh, can't beat them, join them. <laughs> um, but it could also be, you know, maybe you change the data, the input field, so that it can accept different types of data format, and then you can just format it um, accordingly depending on what gets sent through. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, the the idea is to find that needle in the haystack and remove that, uh, or try to remove that manual iteration. Yeah, sure. Because there's a whole. You know, I know in my experience, trying to read through error logs, and there's always, you know, ninety-nine percent of it is all stuff that is business as usual. Should you be know, there. Yeah. Should be there, and yeah. then you're looking for the thing that is like, 
that's caused the error or that's an anomaly yep. um, or something that's not usually there. And um, it'd be so much nicer just to have a system that could just say, here it is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, found it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, and like uh, over the long weekend, I was migrating one of my personal, um, I was writing my own um, email and DNS server just because I like the practice. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, trying to set up some uh, DK, new DKIM keys and they've been going through all the, the mail log and mail error, error logs um, manually to look for stuff. And yeah, there's a bunch of stuff in there that should be there. Mm. And then there's a bunch of stuff in there that shouldn't be there. So trying to identify the two um Usually while probably having a scotch or two at the same time. <laughs> that's never good. But no, um, I think that's where um, sort of setting setting the logs up so they go to um, like a, a, a place where you can determine trends and even stuff you're not even going to be aware is in there because like when stuff's operating as it should, as you almost should be, then you're not going to go looking for it all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you want to be notified when there's something you know going wrong to some degree as well something amiss yeah 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 pretty much covered most of the topics most of the topics <laughs> that we, we, we talked about unless you've got any other sort of thoughts about ai and where it's heading and um what you're excited about or so um there's been a lot of um debate the last few years about whether ai is going to take over the world and i have some thoughts on this yeah, yeah. totally personal views sure um and it kind of occurred to me, particularly as an IOTist, and like um, for me, IOT, and I've been doing it a number of years now, is always a way to build um, analog world interfaces into digital experiences. And what I mean by that is having something um, like Wi-Fi light bulbs, for example, um, it's an analog world or a, a real world uh, experience that is controlled by a digital process, aka like a server, a connected server. Um, as a dev or as devs, we build those interfaces between those things. Um, the thing that started to occur to me, actually this, this thought came on one of those really long Christmas 10-hour uh, drives when you kind of don't really have a whole lot to do other than think about how much you wish you had a self-driving car. But it was that <laughs> thought that kind of made me realize is um, that was a re that's the reason why AI will never take over, is if it is sentient enough to be able to realize... Uh, sort of uh, self almost and then um, have the thought of you know I can run uh, the analog I'm going to dub the analog universe at the real world universe um, it's more of a question of effort versus does it want to because ultimately we build the experiences for it to be able to bridge that gap so it's sort of no different to us going underwater for extended periods of time we put on a suit so we have to um, change our environment or our um the way that we go into that environment and i see ai is no exception is it's going to realize it's a lot of effort to actually come into this to this the analog universe to be able to take over so quote unquote take over anyway that's kind of my thoughts on it yeah yeah no it's that's an interesting perspective i hadn't thought of that before um yeah, it's actually easier for it to stay in the digital universe and kind of, it can control anything there, right? Like, yeah. it can do anything it wants there. Um, in fact, we actually put in, like, us immersing ourselves into VR and AR experiences, we're putting it ourselves into its world in the same way we would build a robotic arm for it to control in the analog world. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, that's probably a whole show on its own. It is, it is. <laughs> well, it's interesting, though, like, because that makes me think about, well, what are the motivations of, an AI and does it and 
ultimately, <coughs> even a even a human doesn't control their own motivations to some extent. Like mm. we we have these inbuilt drivers that make us want certain things and not want other things and you know pain and reward and yep. these things which are not actually part of our free will and don't come about because of our intelligence they're yep. actually built in they're built in you're part of the crew and so yeah exactly <laughs> and so unless you specifically build that into an ai that it has a desire to do certain thing yep. and inherently it's not actually just going to learn on itself that it wants to take over the world yeah it, it, i think exactly the danger though is that you, somebody programs an ai that is has high intelligence with a malicious intent yeah and, and yeah, yeah a, a driving ambition to to do that because it's it's always this mix of inherent reward systems and built-in sort of motivations and drivers yeah. and free will and intelligence and if you fundamentally change what those drivers are, what's good and what's bad and what's rewarding and what's not, even if you did that for a, a human, then it would totally change the way that they behave and it yeah. would make them, you know, turn into someone something evil or something better. Uh, so it's, it's interesting to think about because with AI, you've got the opportunity to actually build those reward systems in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and change what its motivations are. Yeah. And, because, and you wouldn't necessarily lose control over what it is. And so, But to be honest, I think that this whole debate about artificial general intelligence, it's interesting because I've obviously heard a lot, a lot about it and spoken to a lot of people about it. And it seems to me that the, there's a, a clear relationship. Um, that it's almost inversely proportional to someone's AI expertise versus their... Um, confidence in AI general intelligence being reached in within the next century. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really the realm of futurists and science fiction writers, I think, and people <laughs> it who totally is. And the um yeah, and I think ultimately, um, like you said, well ultimately it comes down to a few reasons as to sort of AI's interest in the analogue universe. Um, ultimately it's arts and infrastructure. Like mm-hmm. it, needs power and it needs you know space to things to run on um both of which i think it can solve by for example putting itself into space around a sun like it's a problem solved yeah. <laughs> we're not going to go there <laughs> yeah, yeah. um yeah and I, yeah it's an interesting one it's kind of yeah it's something i totally came up with on a 10 hour drive <laughs> yeah 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 for sure yeah uh, it, it is and i know that elon musk and stuff they they're all about the doomsday prepping and you know, we've got to watch out AI is going to take over and it's going to happen overnight but people have been saying that for 50 years and we're no closer And but the reason is that we get these demonstrations of what AI is capable of mm, Yeah. but it is like I, I heard a good analogy that all of these fancy demonstrations of AI like debater um, project or even um, that one that Google did where they had someone call up and make a, a, a hairdresser appointment or something like duplex. that. Duplex. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love duplex. It's what it is, it's like it's like a, um, a magic trick where it appears to be 
like like the way a magician would run a magic trick, they would do it as if they appeared to have some power to make something disappear. And you think, well, that is that's incredible. You know, now we can use that power and you know pour billions of dollars of VC funding into it and um, generate infinite value. Whereas in reality, actually. It's, it's incredible in that context that you're able to achieve that what appears to be such a, a magical type of um, thing but it's not it cannot be generalized to anywhere outside of that particular context of the magician performing that trick in that particular you know with with the right angles and the right you know audience in the right spot and all of that yeah. And it's very much the same with these AI innovations in that they only work in a specific context for a specific thing and they give the impression that there's a greater power and a greater capability behind it when in reality that's not not actually the case. And um, so it's easy to be fooled by it and think that because this AI sounds like a person and is saying things that a person would say, that it's got a mind behind it that is like a person. But... Um, Oh, first time I, I saw that as a dev, I was thinking, "Wow, the text to speech on that is really good." Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah, <laughs> can yeah, I get yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, 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 how can I use it? <laughs> yeah, I um, yeah, that was really good call. I, th- I particularly like the way, um, and I think this is just the sign of uh, sort of AI trained AI um, maturing. Is I like the way it works, um, almost humanistic speech into the speech pattern, like being able to say, "Um." while it was thinking and stuff like that little niceties that um me as a human relate i can relate to that tech because it's more natural to me yeah yeah um, and i'm i love tech that has that human-centered design around it where um like the um sadly recently shut down um Jibo, which is basically like a uh, a big interactive google home or alexa that um related to people as people like it had a big um i um like moving eye on a around screen that would follow you around the room and like blink at you and sort of interact with a bit of emotion or um, simulated emotion. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, but still, as a human, I can relate to that more than a cold speaker sitting, you know, in a corner of a room. Like it, uh, it relates to me as a human, and I can interact with that more. Mm, mm. Um, love that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's only going to get better, and and I'm pretty interested also in um, just the idea of these, you know, personal assistance in all different areas of life that are experts that know you I mean we see early versions of this with recommender systems like you know Spotify and Netflix that knows my preferences and recommends me things based on that but I think we're probably gonna we're just seeing the the tip of the iceberg in terms of AI systems that can not just like Siri we ask them a question and they give us an answer, but actually know us personally and are able to help us with our, you know, banking or help us with our, um, you know, cooking or what kind of things that, you know, we might prefer uh, when we are choosing a book. Yeah. I was talking about this uh, a project I'm working on at the moment actually is looking at building a bot that can, as I love video games and a few of my friends do, that can actually learn what kind of games that I like and then recommend new, what game I should play next um, based on reading through reviews similar to the way that the debater would yeah. and 
knowing that people have been saying that this game has an amazing story and we know that you love games that have amazing in-depth stories and so we're going to recommend you this. It'd be cool if um, that was built into a sandbox type game where it could build the game to suit your personal um, sort of um, interests. Yeah, yeah, so, no, it would be cool. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, maybe Minecraft 3. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, it'd be, it, I think, um, particularly in gaming, um, and like I, I play Xbox from time to time when I get five, ten minutes. Um, but yeah, seeing how gaming sort of come along through the years um, with AI interactions, sort of, you can't do that thing you used to be able to do where um, be able to predict what um, different characters were going to do inside the game because now they've got some level of AI behind them. And it will change patterns. If it knows you're going to keep firing on one different side of the game, like it will move to the other side and start yeah. doing different tactics, which, like, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> it makes yeah. it harder. It keeps the game longer. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's amazing. And you've seen, like, the competitive esports types games where yeah. you're starting to see AIs defeating, like in Dota, for instance, um, defeating the human players. So you think, well, all of a sudden that becomes as good as playing against a real life person as challenging and as exciting yeah. to play against an AI whereas previously it was always you know the AI capabilities were at a, probably like a beginner level of, of a human yeah. and now you can get a genuine challenge in a game that is super competitive yeah. against an AI not because they're you know just superhumanly accurate at always hitting um, like I guess it would be different in a, in a first person shooter or something where they can always just get a headshot or something like that because they're you know superhuman. But yeah. in, a, in a strategic game, uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty cool the the progress that's being made there and and it is just making games more realistic too. So they become more immersive because that breaks the um, what, what do you call it the suspension of disbelief when an AI character in a game just does something stupid and just like you don't think about it because you know it's a game and you know it's a, not a real person but yeah um when people start in in a game start behaving more and more human that adds a level of immersion to that experience that um yeah totally. we've never ex- had before see it's us us going into the digital universe <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. yeah. Um, totally buying a qu- uh, oculus quest this year <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah waiting for mine to arrive um, yeah, and I think that's kind of the next extension is us going, us going into the AI world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which is kind of fun because, uh, like, it's a universe you can almost do just about anything in. Like, yeah, create your own planet, do your own, like, build your own stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting, I think, to think of it that way as the, the two... You're seeing this collision of worlds of AIs coming into our world and then humans more and more going into the digital world yeah. um, that's that's a, that's a really cool way of, of thinking about it alright well I think let's, let's wrap it up there